From the Wall Street Journal, this is Instant Message. I'm David Pierce. This week on the show, lots of social media talk. We'll get into what we learned about the future of Facebook from its big annual developer conference, where the company talks about all the important things it's working on. Later, Katie Binley, friend of the show and journal tech reporter, will talk with actor and entrepreneur Joseph Gordon-Levitt about what the internet does to creativity, both in good and bad ways. But first, there's an up-and-coming new social cool kid app, and it's coming to take over the meme universe. It's called TikTok, and every time I look at it, it makes me feel super old. So here to explain why it's so popular and tell me all about all their favorite dank memes, Joanna Stern and Christopher Mims. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. So are you both huge TikTok aficionados now? Like, is that, are you, are you TikTok stars yet? I'm a TikTok stan. Definitely going to be a TikTok influencer soon. All right. Well, we're going to, we're going to come back to that. But first, I'm curious, I feel like TikTok is one of those things that has become massively popular without getting a ton of sort of mainstream attention. Like I, I hear it all the time, but I don't feel like it's it's been talked about all that much. So what Mims, explain what TikTok is and, and why you wrote about it. So TikTok uh, is very reminiscent of a short video service called Vine that Twitter used to run that was beloved by users until it was shut down. Basically, it's just these short videos that loop. Um, And so on its face, it's just like, okay, who cares? Like, it's just another social place to like stick, you know, content. Like we already have that in Instagram and Instagram stories. Um, But it has been designed in this incredibly clever way that makes it very uh, compelling. That means that it's full of a great deal of creativity, uh, mostly by teens, but by people of every ages. Uh, it's very, uh, driven in terms of music and, um, you know, sharing music and, and even sounds from television or original sounds. And it just, it's this perfect mix of what is joyful in fun, you know, comedic, things that go viral on the internet. Uh, And it's just sort of very incredibly well designed to encourage people to make that kind of content and to share it. And it probably has better discovery tools than anything I've seen other than maybe Pinterest, which has really good discovery tools that are underrated. So when you say discovery tools, what what does that mean? Because the thing I see on TikTok mostly is basically somebody takes a song or a, a snippet of a song and everybody's either doing like these dance challenges to them or lip syncing in a funny way. It's like, it, but it's all based on music, at least from what I can tell. Most of it is pulling from a song, but like, how do you discover memes based on a song? Well, if you just tap around on the app and frankly, it's a lot more intuitive than like Snapchat where there's all these gesture based controls, True. it's all got buttons and everything. Um, you know, you, you, you tap on the, the, in the corner on the little like spinning record, uh, which is great for those of us who remember what vinyl looked like. Um, and it shows you every other clip that has used that, uh, song snippet. And, um, you know, it, it also just has what I think is some frighteningly good AI in terms of it's watching like what you're looking at, what you like, what accounts you follow. And it is just really good at suggesting you next stuff. That's very compelling. I mean, YouTube has that as well. I think an important difference to note here is that TikTok is owned by a Chinese company, ByteDance, and they have absolutely no qualms about having a very heavy hand in terms of, uh, editing what content is allowed. You can't have anything that's the least bit risque, which you wouldn't want because there's a ton of kids 
tons and tons of kids on TikTok. Like you get, you get kids, uh, you know, who are too young for any other service who love TikTok. It looks like they haven't even tried, but they, they, and I mean, you described this before. They're sort of like these short little clips that are put together to make like a, like a mini movie. Either they have some music behind or soundtrack behind it, or they're like, I, it's foreign to me. Like I was like, I tried to make one. And I was like, I, I'm not, I'm never going to show this to anyone. It's horrible. <laughs> right. But it's, it's a, it's impressive to me how often you'll click on like a massively viral TikTok. You'll click through to that person's account and like, yeah, there are TikTok influencers, but they're also kids who've only made four TikToks in their whole life. And like the third one was just kind of somehow pitch perfect. So I think for bored kids, it also helps that the editing tools in TikTok are really good. Right. Uh, it just it just makes it easy to make these things look good, look compelling. I mean, we just saw Facebook at F8 respond in a way, I think. I think they're already responding to TikTok. They put much better editing tools in Instagram for stories, for video, because they recognize, like, you don't want people to have to, like, do all this editing in one app and then import the content into Instagram. It's just, it's it's too heavy if you want people to really use it a lot. And so that's another thing that TikTok's been good at. One of the things that's been amazing to for me using the app is that it feels like it's closer to the future of TV than anybody else's attempts at this. Like IGTV is this weird long form Instagram. Facebook watch just wants to be Netflix, but is bad at it. But this is like, it just feels like the future. It's, it's all video. There's no text. There's no long captions. It's just, just an endless stream of video. And I, I caught myself watching it basically forever. Like it, you just scroll and scroll and scroll and there's always something to watch. Just the, the structure of the app itself felt kind of incredible. Yeah, and and let's not forget that the future of TV is TV. That's what all these streaming services are yes. about. So, you know, long form's not going away. Younger people are not binge watching any less than anybody else. But, you know, they all have this second and third screen on their person. You know, we're all whipping them out at stolen moments. So I think it's just it's really the perfection of the form, right? Like, you know, Facebook with its main site somehow managed to transition to mobile. Uh, and then clearly they had to buy Instagram because Instagram was much, you know, started on mobile. Snapchat was even more kind of mobile native. And TikTok, I think, is just the next evolution of the form where it's like, what is the absolute perfect, most compelling thing to consume on this little you know, four to six inch rectangle you have in your pocket. And this actually syncs up, David, with the best news of the week that Samsung is making a TV that rotates vertically. <laughs> Presumably, TikTok will make an app for this TV and you will just be able to sit back on your couch and watch a vertical. Oh, no, you have to stand up, I feel like, to really watch it. Yeah. And I think that, I think that what we, you know, right now, TikTok, it's like memes and songs um, and all this other stuff, but they are clearly building the infrastructure to expand this in all kinds of other directions Definitely. in the future. Every one of these social platforms, as we've learned, starts out innocent and fun and winds up, you know, horribly wrong. Uh, what's, what's the, what's the long-term horribly wrong future of TikTok. They just don't have adequate content moderation. They don't seem to have that problem though. I, th I honestly think these Chinese companies it's okay. This is weird. And it just occurred to me, I think this is the first time when we have seen the, uh, the censorious practices of the Chinese government translate into a global market advantage for a Chinese startup. 
like usually these things can't like WeChat or whatever can't expand outside of China because they're not open enough because the Chinese government is watching them. You got to ban all this content. But if you have something that is banning content that people don't like or find the least bit distasteful is the new coolness. Well, let me tell you something, man, uh, a startup called ByteDance from China that has been dealing with all the bazillions of things that are banned in China and the way you have to have, you know, tens of thousands of moderators doing everything in real time. They have a leg up in that. Like they're great at real time moderation because it's an existential issue for them. I mean, there's so many teens on here. You know, bad things are going to start happening. You know, this will start to be a place where I mean, there everyone will flock here. It'll it'll it will just take some time. It got temporarily banned in India because some Indian higher court found the content a little bit risque. Which, if you're, I think, you know, very conservative. Uh, culturally you you know you might it's like kids dancing and stuff and sometimes it might seem a little bit like that depending on your background i wonder too how an app like this like it's it's a thing we've sort of been waiting for but haven't quite seen where an app that started in china and is very sort of culturally of china in the same way gets really big in the u.s like wechat hasn't really done it yet huge apps that run the world in china have not really made it to right. the u.s and this is a really interesting sort of beachhead it, to be clear this was musically which was started right. in the u.s ByteDance bought it so it is this interesting hybrid where it was a u.s uh app first with a u.s team which i think helps so they didn't have to uh translate it in any sense it was more like okay we're gonna buy this and do what we know how to do best with it that's really and they have they have a big team in the u.s now they have a big team in the u.s and it's really interesting they're super quiet about it there have been zero um executive profiles of who are the heads of this either in the u.s or in china like they are they have this hunger like they are coming in and they're just like we're going to expand 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 make it super compelling like we don't we're not going to rely on the conventional press to um you know trumpet this like we're just going to go viral through young people until we're gigantic and i believe they already have north of a half a billion users globally already and i think most of those users actually were like in india but i mean you know they, they, very few social mediums have that ability to just cross borders. You know, Snapchat can only kind of do it. Facebook is one of the few precedents. And now TikTok. I mean, I think it's probably just a matter of time, but I, I like your optimism. <laughs> <laughs> We should talk about Facebook here because this week was Facebook's annual developer conference, F8, which it very kindly held down the street from my apartment in San Jose, California. Uh, These conferences are always an interesting way just to sort of see what companies are thinking about going forward. And for Facebook, it comes at, uh, let's call it charitably, an interesting time. It's had this terrible couple of years, even though its stock has totally rebounded. And recently, the CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, has started to make these big public proclamations about all the ways Facebook is going to change. It's privacy and blockchain and messaging and payments and who knows what else. Uh, Jeff Horowitz, our Facebook reporter, was at the event with me this week. So let's call him and get his thoughts on what happened also. So Jeff, let's start here. This was your first F8. Is that right? This was my first F8. What what was it like to be at this F8 uh, as as a first timer, this is a it's a weird time for Facebook. So, like, what were you feeling walking into F eight? Yeah. So the the conference itself is um, 
is an interesting vibe in that many of the things that Facebook is really interested in talking about don't matter a lick to the people who are present for it, right? The developers. So I mean, a lot of the things that, that Facebook is concerned about are very, very different from um, the interests of the people they're working for. So there's, they're, they're working with there. So it's, it's an interesting situation. There are definitely some you know, materials that are highly useful for people from a sort of a development um, and sort of more business-focused uh, background. But I mean, as with all things Facebook recently, the focus has been less on how money's getting made than on, on other issues. There's this weird thing happening with Facebook where they have a business that's making a lot of money and is working very well, and the, their stock price seems to have recovered in a very big way from the, the bad things that happened to it a couple of years ago. But then on the other side, they've had this just ongoing PR nightmare, and it's this it's this sort of existential crisis that isn't really an existential crisis. And <laughs> that was the thing that really struck me, like just sitting down. It's like, well, how are they going to, how do you talk about yourself as Facebook now is such a bizarre thing because all these people are watching, but all the people in the audience, like you said, are not the people, they're, they're there because they believe in Facebook and they're making money off of Facebook. So they have no compelling reason to be worried about any of this stuff. Right. As, as and, crises go, it's, it's really not that unpleasant of a situation. <laughs> I think there were, you know, I got a few puzzled looks when I asked people sort of like, well, how is this relevant to what you do when, um, you know, sort of just canvassing people in lines and waiting for lunch and drinks and things like that. But there was recognition. Bluntly, they are all tied to a part of a big ecosystem. Um, and there have been um, some serious concerns. And I mean, they get it, right? It's, it's like, you know, they're, inter- they're, they're interested in, in what Mark's saying, everybody, as much as everybody, and, you know, people who are sort of more generalists would be, but they're interested sort of as Facebook users and as people who are just like, generally interested in the internet. I think there's a lot of leeway for them to get pretty general at the moment and to focus on things that aren't relevant to, you know, the sort of day-to-day business of making money on ads. So, okay, so there was there was a lot of news. My sense of it was that the first sort of big thing they announced that was probably like the, the headline piece of news was this redesign of the Facebook app. Would you agree with that? Was there anything you thought was better no, than that? No, certainly not. I mean, that was the thing that they, they threw a whole party for the sort of relaunch. Um, you know, it was, it, you know, for their own employees. I mean, this is, this is a thing that was viewed as being significant internally. And um, they threw a party? They threw a party, for, uh, yeah. Like slightly restyling the website and the mobile app? <laughs> um, yes, yes. There was a logo and everything for the rebranding. So yeah, Whoa. yeah. You know, let it not be said that it was not branded. Thank goodness. So what, walk us through it. What is the, 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 the big thing I got out of the redesign was that instead of being blue, it's now white. True, but true. What, what else that is was, going that, on here? That was more of a, of a, just a demonstration that, you know, yes, we're serious. The big thing is groups, 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 and maybe a little bit of stories. Per sort of Mark's keynote speech, sort of really kind of nudge people toward joining interest-based groups instead of, you know, that one, that's where people are going anyway. And two, that, that in these interest-based groups, communities, etc., groups are definitely present pretty much, you know, it's like every, every place you go on that app, Facebook is going suggest groups to you. Do you think that this is because it turns out that the people who have left Facebook and the people that are currently on Facebook are really been only there now for the groups? Um, What Facebook has said is that just in the last year, basically, they've doubled to 400 million people who they believe the groups are a very important part of their, are very personally meaningful to them is the way Facebook is is putting that. Now, you know, I haven't seen those Mm -hmm. metrics, so, um, uh, you know, but but that, yeah. yeah. 
It's just like anecdotally, like what I see is, I mean, I I never use Facebook really anymore. I mean, maybe once or twice a week, I'll just tap in there because I've got an annoying notification. But a lot of people in my life that I know are like, oh, you're have you seen that in the mom's group or have you seen that in, in the Jersey City group where I live? So like I hear anecdotally a lot of people talking about like those being the reasons they're going back to Facebook. Totally. And I wonder if there was data that, you know, Facebook really just saw saying, you know, this is actually where we've had this these people that are not leaving us because they're not going to Instagram for messaging or, or stories. They're not going to Absolutely. Messenger or some other Messenger Facebook, platform. Facebook has hinted to say. Facebook um, has definitely hinted yeah. that that's, that's where the data are suggesting they need to go. I mean, it's it's not, you know, there there is something pretty nice about the self-contained unit, right? There's somebody else who's doing frontline moderation. That's the group admin. There's the ability to mm-hmm. sort of regulate mm-hmm. dialogue a little more carefully as a result of that, right? There's like, you know, if someone's not participating in the uh, norms of the group, they can be removed. Kind of the delete your account meme, uh, except you actually can do it in the context of a group. Mm-hmm. And it works out for them pretty well if people are engaged in that way. Mm-hmm. Well, and it does seem like the, the undercurrent of all of this is Facebook trying to, if not get rid of, then at least make you think less about the news feed, which has mm-hmm. been really Facebook's big problem. And, and Zuckerberg even said in an interview he gave, I forget to whom exactly, but he said, I think it was messaging groups right. and stories were, were the three biggest thing. And all of those have one thing in common, mm-hmm. which is that right. you are in charge of them and thus Facebook is not, and thus you can't blame and, Facebook and so for all the terrible there's, stuff there's, that there's a, there's there. a touch of that, right? <laughs> and, and I mean, news feed is both Facebook's problem and also Facebook's big, highly profitable problem. But yeah, I mean, Zuckerberg is saying all of these more private means of communication that, you know, are going to somehow end up being every bit as important to users and hopefully as important to Facebook as Newsfeed ever was. Um, and that's a that's a hard sell inside the company. I mean, I think one of the things that, that Zuckerberg is, did at F8 um, is and the other executives who spoke were very keyed in on the themes here of, you know, privacy, group uh, discussions, you know, one-on-one and sort of small group communication. Everybody was using these buzzwords. I I think there was a pretty concerted effort to demonstrate to Facebook itself that Mark is serious, if that makes sense. Mm. And anyone who's not on board with that really needs to rethink it. I mean, there was kind of a subtext of that. And I mean, it's Mark's made very clear, I think, that this is not a thing that should be treated as a whim of an executive. Isn't Facebook the champion, just like the absolute of all tech companies, all time champion of coming up with new initiatives and then just letting them quietly die? Definitely a few attendees were noting, you know, oh, remember that that delete history thing that they announced last year? There's there's so many things that Facebook talked about. I mean, they talked about payments are everywhere. They're uniting all their different apps. Uh, groups are the thing. They're they're they have a secret crush app. I got the distinct sense sitting there that that what Facebook is trying to do is basically drown you in things so that all you think about you think about Facebook in any way you choose as long as it's not about all the stuff that people have been talking about in the last couple of years. Facebook is like we want to be all things to all people except this thing that you associate us with, which is destroying American democracy. What was your big? And I'm curious for for all of you what you think about this. Like, what was the big thing that you took away as like if there's going to be one thing that comes out of this. F8 that like really, really matters to actual users of Facebook, what is it going to be? I guess seeing what, you know, they're going to, what's going to happen now, now that they're sort of really turning on the, the spigot in terms of this, then that that could be a significant change. Well, I have two takeaways. One is that Mark Zuckerberg is still Arch. no better at giving a keynote speech than he was 10 years ago. I mean, I wasn't sitting in the audience, you guys were there, but there was this awkward, there was this awkward video that sort of 
went around, I guess it was kind of on TikTok or I don't know where I've seen it, but bunch of places where he says like we we have no right to joke about privacy or we can't I can't forget the quote and it's just like dead silence in in the audience and I just thought that was uh, an interesting moment and and sort of good metaphor for what's going on it was yeah. a total Jeb Bush please clap moment it was <laughs> unbelievable terrible for him. And then I would say this is not F8, but it is happening this week and the news is breaking right now that Facebook has just banned Alex Jones, Milo, can someone pronounce the last name? Minneapolis. Laura Loomer, Louis Farrakhan and others from Facebook and Instagram. My feed is going to be just empty. I don't know what I'm going to read anymore on Facebook. I know. And so they're citing dangerous individuals and organizations, and this is against their policies. And so I think coming out of a week of them talking about how they're going to have want users to have more control of their platform, this just goes back to the fact that Facebook has gotten so, can we say effing on this podcast, big, that at the end of the day, how much control does Facebook really still have over the decisions that they're making on the platform? Obviously, the blowback of the last year and a half or two years, but still, when when you get when you have the company itself announcing this, it's a good move, right? It has said all the right things about what it ought to be doing for a pretty long time now. There's just been basically no evidence that it's actually doing it. So any any inkling that, that things are actually starting to move forward here seems like pretty good news. Now, before we get to Joseph Gordon-Levitt, it's time for our segment, Today I Learned. In this segment, every week, one of us shares something weird we learned or discovered that may or may not have anything to do with a story. This week, I have something. So somebody somebody asked me what I learned this week. What did you learn this week? Okay, so I learned this week that there is this one huge problem in virtual reality for it to become the future that absolutely nobody has figured out to solve. And we've actually been talking about this for like 30 years. So I wrote this story this week about the Oculus Quest, which is a new VR headset from from Oculus, which is owned by Facebook. And its whole thing is it has all its tracking built in. So you can actually put on the headset and move around in space. Uh, and it works relatively well for that. But there's this interesting thing where if you want to move in a game, like, you know how if you're just playing a video game and you want to move, you use the joystick to move and, and that moves you, right? If you do that in a VR headset, it'll make you sick because basically it's the same thing that happens when you're, you get motion sickness or something. If you're in a car and your body isn't moving, but your eyes and brain think that you're moving, you get this, this sensory conflict is what they call it. And it, it just sort of breaks. And that's why you get nauseous or you get car sick or, or whatever. And it turns out this is a big thing that uh, people have been talking about. I found this great study that the army did in 1995. Uh, they, they found they had all these great uses for training and simulation and stuff with VR, but they had this problem where the same as when people were in flight simulators, people were getting sick and they found 40 different factors that were leading to people getting sick. Everything from the color and contrast on the screen, like all these little tiny things you wouldn't necessarily think of uh, all the way up to the biggest problem they found, which was the transport delay, which is essentially when you do something, the lag between you moving or pressing a button or deciding to do something and that thing appearing on the screen made a huge difference in how sick people felt. So they got to this point in 1995 where they were like, someday this can be perfect, but we have to solve all of these things. And I've been talking to people about this uh, since I've been reporting this piece. And it's basically to a point where we've solved none of this. They have these like little tricks you can get around it where you can sort of teleport in a game. And because that's so different from how your body moves, that feels a little more normal. But we're at this point where it's like this VR is not going to work for everybody until we get basically every single part of how we move around 
perfect. And we're still a really long way away from that. So what everybody's thinking of now is uh, these like omnidirectional treadmills that you can run on. And that's maybe not exactly a perfect solution. So I learned that we are both closer and further away from the VR future that we hoped for than I ever really thought. And that the army knew this 25 years ago. It sounds a lot like self-driving. We're both closer and further away than anybody thought. And fun fact, one thing that I have heard, this is purely anecdotal, but I've heard this from a number of people recently, is that people who used to get car sick, when they spent a lot of time in VR, stopped getting car sick. Uh, that those two things are so associated in your brain that once you get used to the effect in VR, that you no longer experience it other places. So if you get car sick, just go spend a bunch of time in VR and eventually your brain will just give up trying to figure out what's going on and you suddenly will feel better. As long as we strap our kids into VR headsets at a young enough age for enough hours, sounds like we'll be fine. Yeah, it's, it's problem solved. Well, what could be worse? Um, anyway, okay, so that's what I learned this week. Coming up in just a second, Katie Binley and Joseph Gordon-Levitt talk about what happens when Twitter gets a say in absolutely everything you do. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot. Welcome back. So a few weeks ago, Katie Binley, who's been on the show a bunch of times, went to the TED conference in Vancouver. Uh, if you don't know, TED is one of those big idea festivals where you get to hear lots of people talk about everything from climate change to democracy to whether you should sleep more. During the conference, Katie sat down with a bunch of interesting people to talk about their talks, plus their lives and much more. And we're going to run a couple of those interviews here in the next couple of weeks. The first one fits nicely with the stuff we've been talking about today. It's with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, the actor you might know from, I don't know, Inception or Looper or 500 Days of Summer or for playing Edward Snowden in Snowden, or my personal favorite JGL performance, 10 Things I Hate About You. He's also the founder of a company called Hit Record, a sort of online community for creative people. He gave a talk about how social media and the constant conversation online affects creativity. And he and Katie get into all of that. But first, she asked a question I've actually always wondered. What's it like for an actor who's used to performing in front of lots of people to give a TED talk? Uh, it depends on when you start counting. <laughs> I, I went to TED for the first time last year and I was like, oh, I want to do that. No, uh, it's really different. I mean, there's overlap between uh, doing a TED talk and acting, uh, but they are pretty different. It's, you feel very um, laid bare. Um, there's no, you know, there's no character that you're playing. And I was very much just talking about myself, my experience, what I think, and uh, it, it it was thrilling and actually really quite challenging, harder than I thought it was going to be in a good I way. I bet. Well, because one of the things I was definitely struck by is that you were very honest about something that I think a lot of people um, aren't always honest about, which uh. is caring about how much attention they receive on social media. Yeah. Um, I think that's not necessarily that easy for people to admit, even though there's kind of evidence of it everywhere. Yeah. Um, and so just to kind of catch listeners up who have not heard the talk and weren't there for it, uh, it was focused on attention and creativity and how social media can impact 
impact creativity. Uh, so one of the things you talked about is your relationship with Twitter. And I guess I just want to start with the fact that I always kind of assumed that people with follower counts in like the six and seven digits were not like paying attention to the notification bell telling them that like more people had followed them and that they just probably didn't care very much. Mm-hmm. Um, but you kind of got up and admitted that you you have a, you did you know you cared about how many people were following you. And it's it just, impossible not to care. <laughs> I mean, I think that's that's the thing. These uh, why is it impossible? Well, these machines are built on uh, very uh, robust understandings of human psychology and how you can take advantage of our sort of brain's nature to make an addictive cycle. Uh, One of the books that I referenced in in the talk is uh, this book called Hooked by Nir Eyal, um, which is a great book. And uh, he does a great, I've never met Mr. Ayal, but he does a great job of distinguishing and saying like, you can make addictive products with this kind of methodology, or you can make positive habit forming products. Um, and you know, of course <laughs> I was reading it, hoping that we could, you know, I, I started a company called hit record and it's like an online platform for creative, uh, you know, collaboration. And, and we're trying to make a positive habit. Uh, people can, sorry, we're trying to, um, I guess, yeah, create a, a, a positive habit for people to be creative together. Um, but uh, that really depends on what what's the incentives of the platform that's creating these habits. And what, what did you notice about your own behavior on Twitter or Instagram or your own mindset while you were using it? Well, you get addicted to it. Um, and that comes from a feeling of insecurity. And I think that insecurity is natural because you get this rush when you get the positive feedback and then you want more. That's what makes anything addictive. You want more of that feeling and Sometimes it gives it to you and sometimes it doesn't. They call that variable reward, I've learned. And it's sort of, it's the same thing that makes slot machines addictive. And how did you find it was affecting your creative process? <laughs> when you get sort of addicted to something, it's constantly on your mind. What kind of were you trying mind. to create at the time? And how were you finding yourself? Were you finding yourself distracted? Like, were you trying to, what were you trying to do when you noticed this? Well, it could be anything. Like, it, you know, I'm, I'm an actor, so it could be, like I mentioned, when I'm reading a script, considering if I want to act in a movie or it could be you know any other little I like to do lots of little creative projects just for fun whether it's a writing thing or a music thing or whatever but when you know that what you're going to be writing or the music you're going to be playing is something that you're going to post online then it gets into your head of like well how will it be received online and will this be the thing that gets me maximum likes or maximum followers or should I do something else if I do it differently maybe I'll get more likes or more followers and it's really hard to get that uh, that sort of part of the equation out of your mind and, and then you're no longer listening to your sort of inner voice and what makes creativity often so satisfying then you're just listening to uh, this sort of um, feedback cycle of what gets you the most points in this you know popularity game. Do you think it can lead to sort of bad decisions creatively like going in a direction when you're trying to kind of please what you think or, or when you're trying to appeal to what you think other people would like versus kind of staying true to what you actually want to do? I mean, bad is a relative term. Uh, what I would say is it will lead to uh, a less fulfilling experience and, and an experience that's probably 
less full of joy and less full of uh, meaning. And in my life, I've been really lucky. I've gotten to have a lot of creative experiences that were really meaningful and gave me a lot of joy. Uh, and I think um, if you focus on what's going to get you the most attention, it's generally going to take you away from that feeling of meaning and that feeling of joy. Whereas if you can focus on the creative process itself, in my experience, uh, that's where I find the most rewarding, meaningful uh, fulfillment. Are there any like specific times you can think of when you realize that that social media wasn't bringing out like the best side of you creatively? And did you do it? Like, was there a crystallizing moment where you decided to change anything or go around talking about it to people? (laughs) Uh, I mean, (laughs) I am now going around talking about it to people. Um, I fluctuate a lot on how, uh, you know, how much I look at people's responses on social media. I post a lot. I post a lot every day um, because I'm uh, trying to get people to come to hit record and participate in other kinds of creativity. Um, But I fluctuate in how much I look at what people say or how many people hit the like button, et cetera. And I definitely notice that when I look more, uh, I have more anxiety in my life. And that anxiety comes when I'm actually looking, but the anxiety doesn't stop then. The anxiety kind of creeps into my just all day existence. And that's what makes you want to look more. Is there anything that you notice about how people behave on your platform that you think distinguishes it from how people behave on some of the other? I realize it's like a collaborative platform and it's not just for, it's not just social media, but it is social and it has to do with media. So what do you notice? Yeah, hundred percent. No, I think it's, uh, people behave very differently. Um, People are really sweet to each other. They're really encouraging with each other. They're warm with each other. And they're also, they're not just giving each other thumbs up. I think when, when you have this different premise of, uh, okay, we're all here to, to make something together and you have a common goal, um, it just elicits a totally different feeling than the incentive structure of other platforms uh, where your only goal is to get more attention. And by the way, the reason that your only goal is to get more attention is because that attention is what makes those companies money. So it makes sense that that would be the incentives that they offer their users. Um, But uh, that's not how we make money. Uh, And it's not why I started Hit Record. I mean, you know, Hit Record existed for many years before it was a a business at all, actually. It was just a hobby thing I was doing with my brother for a number of years uh, before we figured out how we could uh, get more ambitious with it and and, uh, launch it as a production company. Um, But uh, yeah, when when people are making things together, uh, it's just a totally different thing than than competing in uh, what amounts to a popularity contest. Do you think you're going to continue kind of trying to talk to people about this and sort of, I don't know, raise their consciousness about what's driving their behavior? Do you have, like, is there, is there more on your docket for this? <laughs> Those are tall words. I appreciate it. I'm flattered. Uh, are you a like activist now? I mean, or an anti-like activist. Well, I, I don't know what you would call you. Like I said, I, I feel really lucky in my life. I've gotten a lot of meaning and joy out of getting to be creative. And what we found we're doing this over the years with Hit Record is one great way to unlock people's creativity is to say, hey, do it together with other people. And so I feel, yeah, quite compelled to try to offer that to as many people as will come. And, and I do think that it's a quite a different experience 
coming to uh, a different kind of media platform where people are making things together as opposed to just posting things they made on their own and you know hoping to get attention and uh, that is a feeling that yeah I would like to be able to provide to as many people as possible because I feel lucky that I've gotten to have it uh, so so yeah that's that's the intention this is why we actually you know for talking on the Wall Street Journal we'll talk about the, the <laughs> business side of things uh, you know we, we raised money um, we raised venture capital Oh, yeah, at I hit record for the first time. A couple months ago. We never had to before uh, because the production company business made money. Like I said, we've been cash flow positive since 2013. Um, but we knew that if we wanted to really include a lot more people, um, that we needed to build better technology. And to do that, we needed to raise some capital and we needed some, some technology partners. So uh, even though it probably would have been easier to raise money in Hollywood for me, because that's you know where I've spent my career we went up to silicon valley and, and raised money from technology vcs um are you still are you trying to raise more no no we closed our series a um we have a great bunch of partners uh javelin uh ventures led the round who's you know known for masterclass and thumbtack uh crosslink capital who's known for postmates and casper um shari redstone's uh fund advanced it uh we had some great angels david rogier the co-founder of masterclass kevin lynn the co-founder of twitch steve chen the co-founder of youtube we've got these great uh tech backers now surrounding us and, and helping us figure out how to take what we've learned as a production company and turn it into a platform so that we can provide the tools to allow anybody to come and, and kind of lead these collaborations uh, in the way that we've been doing successfully for years. And that's our show for the week. Thanks to Joe, Katie, Jeff, Joanna, and Christopher for being here. Thanks to Becca and Tanya, our producers, and Wilson, our editor. And thank you for listening. We have new episodes on Fridays, so make sure you subscribe to Instant Message anywhere you get your podcasts. If you use Overcast, that app just got a really cool tool for sharing audio clips that's really fun to use. Definitely worth checking out. As always, if you have feedback or ideas, email us at personaltech at wsj.com. We'll talk to you soon.